The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. And he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Father, how are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Good to see you. Yes, you too. Father, we have uh, several topics for tonight. Some emails, some current <clears throat> events. Uh, we had a couple questions concerning a, a previous pr program. Uh, if I could start with some emails before we get into the other topics that we wanted to discuss. Um, <clears throat> this first email is titled Omniscience and Christ's Human Nature. Uh, this viewer says, I was wondering if Father Jenkins could talk on omniscience and Christ's human nature, particularly regarding the miracle of the fig tree. He says, if Christ in his human nature was omniscient, why did a hungry Christ approach a non-fruiting fig tree and only upon seeing it containing no fruit, no figs, curse it? Uh, well, if the question is, did our Lord know that the fig tree was barren, as it's called, a barren fig tree? The answer is yes, he knew very well. The fig tree, fig tree was barren. In fact, there are those who say <clears throat> that the fig tree really was not capable of bearing fruit at that point in any case. And uh, so they, they, you know, highlight that, what they call a fact, uh, in order, again, to question, you know, why would our Lord curse the, the barren fig tree if it really was not even able to, to bear figs? <clears throat> but, uh, you know, the fathers of the church, I believe, and if you looked at uh, notably Cornelius Alapide, he would explain that very well, I think, um, that our Lord was using that barren fig tree as a symbol. It was a symbol of the, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews, who um, had been committed the, the promise of a Redeemer. Right? To, to them had been committed the promise of the Redeemer. And the priesthood at that time, uh, of course, was supposed to be uh, conveying that great message of the coming Messiah. And uh, rather than... Uh, you know, preparing the people to receive their Messiah, they were um, uh, actually standing as an obstacle to prevent the people from re from receiving him. <clears throat> and um, so, the barren fig tree actually symbolized that uh, a, a plant that you know, as it were, God planted and God gave the power to bear fruit, and yet it had nothing to give him. Time and time again, our Lord told parables about the. Uh, the vineyard, for example, the vineyard uh, that was basically cultivated by God and then uh, bore nothing but thistles and, and, uh, and briars. And uh, so, again, God cursed it because it did not bring forth the good fruit that he had invested so much to produce. Um, our Lord even talked about uh, renting out, as it were, letting out a fig, the, uh, the vineyard to others, meaning to the care of the leaders of the Jewish people. And um, when he sent his servants, the, parent, the uh, prophets, to them, they often killed the prophets. Right? Um, and so, uh, in one parable, our Lord said he sent his own son, the householder who owned the vineyard, sent his own son to negotiate with him because as he said, surely they will respect my son. But they took his son and they put him to death. That's the symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord was, in fact, speaking of himself in that parable. <clears throat> so if you look at the parables of our Lord, so many of them are about this. Precisely the fact that God invested so much <clears throat> grace right, in this people in order to bring the Savior of the world through them and of their very stock offspring of Abraham, and, um, and they rejected him. And um, the barren fig tree is just one example of that, that what would happen. And, you know, 
the people at the time understood the significance of this. Um, they, they understood that when our Lord was telling these parables, he was talking about the, uh, the, the present leadership of the Jewish people, uh, rejecting himself and his message. As he says, uh, you know, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out devils, no, doubtless the power of God has come upon you. Um, but of course, they, they wouldn't accept him. Right? And that was uh, represented by the barrenness of this victory that produced no spiritual good at all. So yes, our Lord did know that the fig tree had no figs and would have no figs, but he used it as a very poignant symbol, um, a very poignant symbol of the Judaism of that time, led by the people, you know, the, the, the leaders of the Jews at the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, Levi, the, uh, the Levites, right? Mm -hmm. And um, how they would, almost to a man, not all, but almost to a man, reject the Savior, the Messiah, whom they were actually commissioned to receive and to proclaim to the world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this next topic, Father, is a uh, very hot topic right now. Um, this viewer says that although Father Jenkins' question Archbishop Vigano's call to investigate Benedict's resignation. Such an investigation could be exactly what Holy Church needs. This is because Ratzinger is on record as wholeheartedly endorsing Vatican II's reimagining of the consecration of bishops. His resignation is based on his embrace of that false theology. If his resignation is deemed invalid due to quote-unquote substantial error and is based on Vatican II theology, doesn't that call into question the conciliar notion of ordaining bishops? As I think about it, if he is an error, Vatican II is the reason why. If he isn't, then the objections against Archbishop Lefebvre's consecrations, as well as the ordinations of priests outside the conciliar sect, are moot. Could this issue be what is needed to overturn Vatican II? Well, I, I uh, am very puzzled by that question because... Um, what this uh, gentleman, I assume, I don't know, so, yeah. uh, is, is uh, saying is news to me entirely. The reason being is I understood that Benedict's resignation was based upon um, basically his sense of incapacity in face of challenges and struggles. And there are those, and I, I think the, the, the common explanation is, and I, I think uh, this is pretty much accepted that it, that it was uh, the result of events in the Vatican that Benedict had simply lost control over. Notably, uh, the homosexual grip and the, what they call the homosexual mafia right, in the Vatican. And uh, that those who, who questioned Benedict's um, resignation questioned it on the basis of the fact that it was, well, more or less coerced from him. Um, and not, uh, you know, deliberate, voluntary, willful, uh, pre, <laughs> as it needed to be, to be uh, genuine. Uh, that's, that's my under understanding, and I could be it wrong, but uh, this gentleman makes a, a number of assertions here uh, that I, frankly, uh, that surprise me. For example, when he says that Benedict's resignation was based upon Vatican II theology of bishops. I didn't see that anywhere. Uh, I missed that entirely, I'm sorry. Uh, and that he was all behind the Vatican II, the new theology of bishops. Uh, well, I don't know, I didn't know that that had anything to do with it really, as far as what Benedict actually said. So I think if one goes back and reviews what Benedict actually said about his own resignation, um, one would find information to support the idea that that he resigned um, in a sense uh, because he felt that he was just overwhelmed <laughs> by the by the difficulties and un unequal to the task or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know that anything Benedict himself actually put out uh, or offered by way of explanation actually uh, coincides with what a writer has written there. Yeah. Now, 
having said that, um, there, there's certainly a lot I don't know about this, so perhaps our writer does have all of the evidence to back up the assertions he's making there. And uh, I'd certainly appreciate it seeing that, right? By the way, when I, uh, and I, I would appreciate it if you'd send me that, and uh, I would certainly take a good look at it. Um, with regards to um, my comments about Archbishop Vigano, um, uh, favoring and you know, re-examining Benedict's resignation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that it's a, you know, I, I forget it when he said that I was against it or... So you questioned me. it. Questioned it, okay. I just wondered what they, what they thought they had to gain by it, because there are those who are pushing um, for Benedict's resignation to be invalid, uh, so that he would be, uh, you know, the, tr the true successor uh, uh, in the line of the Vatican II popes um, and the Novus Ordo popes. But uh, I, I gather that the, the real impetus behind that is to find a way to invalidate Francis, right? Evidently, they're just desperately trying to find a way to... Uh, reduce Francis. <laughs> um, and exactly, I mean, in, in the process of doing so, they, they should recognize that those who hold the Sedipicata's position uh, do hold a position that, um, you know, has merit to it. There's no doubt about it, right? I mean, they're trying to basically, uh, uh, you know, argue from them. That, that Francis is not the Pope, never was the Pope, or anything of the kind, not the true Pope. And Novus Ordo Pope, and not have faith these days. A lot of people believe that you don't really need to have the faith even to be the Pope these days, right? But uh, in any case, um, somebody would argue that St. Catherine of Siena said that, right? You've seen that quote, St. Catherine of Siena? Well, it's interesting. I thought you had seen that. In fact, we probably wanted to take a look at that. Somebody sent that to me. We can take a look at that quote. Um, but in any case, um, uh, you know, it gets back to the fact that, uh, you know, there are those throughout the history of the church who have argued very forcefully that one has to have the Catholic faith in order to be a Catholic, let alone the Catholic Pope, the vicar of Christ on earth. And uh, if one who claims to be a pope is a manifest heretic, that he has lost the office, if he ever had it to begin with, you know, that's a perfectly Catholic position. And, um, you know, you know that I fault the, the hardline dogmatic state of Acantis because they claim to be able to answer the question themselves on their own authority whether or not Francis is a pope or not. And, I mean, as far as, the, as far as the church is concerned, they're entitled to hold that position. As, as far as being entitled to um, make it a dogma for all the people in the world, they don't have that authority. They are not the magisterium of the Catholic Church. They cannot definitively answer that question for anybody but themselves. <laughs> they cannot do it for everybody in the world. So their dogmatism is the thing that bothers me. They, they arrogate to themselves authority they don't have. But I consider the, the anti-Sedivicantists also to be every bit as guilty in that because they're insisting that you must never, you are not allowed even to question the papacy uh, of a man like Francis. You, must, you, you are wrong to even question it. And they are taking upon themselves the authority to uh, contradict the tradition of the church because the, the church's tradition is very clearly, um, you know, accepted that um, there is a definite uh, open question as to whether a pope who is a manifest heretic can be a Catholic pope or not. And that is a perfectly Catholic position to be, hold, to be held. And anyone among the anti-Sedificantists who says, you can't hold that position, that's not Catholic, again, is arrogating to himself authority he doesn't have. He doesn't have that authority to answer that question. The church has not itself said anything of the kind. But you can't question that. And if you do question it, you're not Catholic. Quite the contrary. You have some very powerful, unmistakably voices, unmistakably Catholic voices in the Catholic Church that have been endorsed by the Church as true teachers of the faith 
who have addressed that very question, whether a, pope, whether a man who is a manifest heretic can be a pope, and their answer has been no. <clears throat> and the church has never condemned them for that and never presumed to correct them for that. <clears throat> there are different schools of thought on that, all of them Catholic. Uh, none of them have, have been condemned by the church uh, or repudiated by the church. So if an anti-sedificatist wants to argue the point whether a person can legitimately hold that position today, uh, they can argue uh, that one cannot only on the basis of the fact that they don't like it and they're not going to let you do it. And, um, uh, but that's the only authority they have, which is none, to forbid you from thinking that. So anyway, I, I, I accuse them both right, of arrogating authority themselves they don't have. Anyway, that's getting a little far afield there, I think. But again, we're talking about the question of papacy of Francis, the papacy of Benedict XVI, and so on. So uh, when that question does come up, inevitably, there's always a deeper question behind it. Okay. Yep. okay. Uh, the next email is a response to, a, uh, to our most previous program. Um, where he talked about the passing of Father Dolan. Mm -hmm. And uh, this viewer wrote in and said that in that episode, you strongly implied that Bishop and Bishop Dolan may have taken the vaccine and that it was why he died so suddenly. However, they say uh, he was staunchly against it to the point where he stated it would be a mortal sin to take it. It is strange that you did not know this. Father, it is even stranger that you did not get the facts before saying anything so publicly. Your comments at least border on calumny. Now that you will know this, will you rectify your comments and apologize for implying that he died from the vaccine? My other question is, why do you call Bishop Dolan Father Dolan, well, uh, but you do not call Archbishop Vigano Father Vigano? If you consider the new rite of consecration invalid, then wouldn't it be inconsistent at best to continue to call him by his Novus Ordo title of Archbishop? Or do you think the Novus Ordo bishops are true bishops? Okay. Well, first of all, I strongly implied that he may have taken the vaccine, right? Yes. That's not the same as strongly implying that he did, right? But I strongly implied he, he may have or might have, I think is what she really means here. So to strongly imply that somebody might have taken the vaccine is just suggesting, well, maybe he took the vaccine, right? Yeah. I don't know. You know, the sudden deaths uh, do raise the question these days, right? Uh, there is a, it is a fact that these uh, <clears throat> vaccines uh, are, are tied to instance of, of myocarditis, and people are dropping dead on both soccer fields and baseball fields. and uh, Well, I don't know, it's not a baseball field, but anyway. Um, uh, even athletes in their prime are dropping dead. Um, we're, we're told it has nothing to do with vaccines, but evidence seems to say the contrary. So to strongly imply that Father Dolan might have taken the vaccine, I mean, it doesn't really say much. Uh, in fact, I, I do know of at least uh, one individual recently who was strongly against the vaccine, very absolutely dead set against the vaccine, um, but actually was induced by an employer to take it and is now dead. Right? And it's someone who was in Father Dolan's category. So, you know, Father Dolan's death on the heels of that other death certainly brought that to mind. And it did raise that question, like you wonder what's going on here. So, um, but I, I said, I don't know. I said, I don't know. I mean, they'll, they'll have to find the cause of death and publish it. I don't know that they have yet. I, I've heard uh, with regard to Father Dolan's death, there's talk about the possibility of stroke. That's what somebody told me. And uh, uh, other, I've, otherwise, I've heard uh, massive heart attack. I mean, these are just stories I've told. But I've, I've looked online because I am interested, because it grieves me that Father Dolan passed away. And I have been praying for him and asking others to pray for him, too, and continue to, to pray and ask others to pray and remember him at the altar. Um, but um, um, I, I've, I've looked for information on cause of death, and the only thing that I have that I can find is that it's, it's not being published. I don't know what that means. You know? So maybe it's just not available yet. I just don't know. 
So I cannot speak to cause of death, okay? Um, certainly, and I make no pretense of doing so. Um, am I concerned about what it was? Yes, of course I am. <clears throat> no, I did not know that Father Dolan had adopted the position that the vaccine was immoral to take and even a mortal sin to take. Um, and why would I know that? Right? I'm not really on the pipeline of information from him or from St. Gertrude or anything of the kind. So I would not necessarily know what his position is on that. He certainly didn't call me and tell me or sent me any information about it. So I, I was just wondering, uh, wondering, kind of wondering out loud. Well, maybe it was imprudent, I don't know. <clears throat> but I am concerned. But I mean, I remember when Terry Schiavo died, when Terry Schiavo was put to death, as you know, by starvation, actually more dehydration, <clears throat> by her... By her husband, as it were, right, and um, and by court order, and uh, as I recall, Father Dolan and Father Sanborn and Father Jacada all justified that. And so, you know, I, perhaps I, I just, you know, raised that question in my own mind as to what Father Dolan's position would be on that, and I didn't know what it was uh, on the vaccine, but I recall that it was you know, earlier this century, that they spoke rather uh, forthrightly about the justification, the Catholic justification for killing Terry Schiavo, something that I totally disagreed with. I think we even have uh, a link to uh, an article I wrote about that whole question, the execution of Terry Schiavo, which I, where I discussed this whole matter. So I thought that was very poor. And uh, in any case, um, with regard to um, um, Father Dolan on the vac vaccine, I then would ex assume that he hadn't taken it. And I don't think it was wrong to ask the question necessarily. Uh, I don't know how else to get an answer than to ask the question, right? Uh, and if she wants to blame me for not knowing it, well, that's <laughs> okay. I plead guilty to not knowing it, uh, if that's a fault. But I don't think it's wrong to ask a question, just uh, uh, to get an answer. Now, the uh, writer asks if I'm going to make a retraction or whatever. Well, I'm being asked to make a retraction on the basis of what this, what this writer says. And she just makes this statement, you know, he says it's immoral, he says it's a mortal sin. And if I can accept that as being factual, and tr if it's true, that truly represents Father Dolan's thought on the subject. Well, that's that's good to know. I, I'm I'm glad to know it. Um, but the only evidence I have for that right now is that that she says so. Okay, um, and I'd much prefer to hear it from Father Dolan himself in one of his writings or talks. But <clears throat> in any case, uh, about referring to him as Father Dolan, and uh, and Archbishop Vigano as Archbishop Vigano. Well, I, I knew Father Dolan way back when, of course, right? And uh, uh, knew him basically at the time of his ordination and so on. And uh, he was always been, he's always been Father Dolan to me. Uh, when he separated from the Society of St. Pius V, he was still very much Father Dolan. That's all I've ever really known him as. And anybody who has been paying any attention, and I hope this lady would pay attention, uh, would know that the Society of St. Pius V does not, does not accept the legitimacy, the Catholic legitimacy, and questions the validity of the Took bishops. I'd like to think everybody by now would know that, but <clears throat> I didn't know that Father Dolan had condemned the vaccines, so maybe she doesn't know that we are, you know, uh, uh, do not approve of the Took bishops as being Catholic bishops. And we have I think, very serious and substantial reasons for that question. So we, we say there is an objective doubt about the validity of the Turk bishops, and Father Dolan was one of them, and um, that there is a certainty of, that they are not Catholic bishops. <clears throat> and we've talked about that a lot, okay? So one can go back and look at the videos we've made and uh, track that down and listen to them, and they would get the whole story. Again, and they might have further questions, which is fine. 
but I'm not going to go through it all here. Again, much to the relief of some re readers and uh, listeners, I'm sure. Um, but that is why I, I refer to Father Dolan as Father Dolan. Right? I don't want anyone to get the impression that we have weakened in our position, or shall we say, modified our position, or, or uh, maybe uh, compromised our position toward the Took bishops that we consider them to be Catholic bishops, uh, and possibly not bishops at all, right? Not validly consecrated. Um, with regard to Archbishop Bigano, I refer to Archbishop Bigano as Archbishop Bigano. That's his public persona. And uh, I don't think anybody, again, who knows me, would say, oh, Father Jenkins accepts the Novus Ordo Visions. Because that is, that is his public persona. That is how he's known. That is how he publishes. And uh, that is how he's regarded. I think our position is very clear <clears throat> on both the Turk bishops and on the Novus Ordo Visions. I think everybody knows where, we're sta where we stand on that. Uh, except perhaps this lady. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> you know, I feel perfectly free to refer to Archbishop Vigano the way I would refer to, um, let's say, Francis as a novus ordo, a new order pope, because that's, that's a different thing. That's a very specific thing, you know. Uh, that's not the same as a, as a Catholic pope, right? To be the cope, uh, pope, of the Supreme Pontiff of the New Order is not to be the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church. Right? <clears throat> and uh, there's no doubt but that Francis is the Supreme Pontiff of the, of the, the New Order. So, um, anyway, I, I, I see why there would be confusion about that after all these years. All I can imagine is that this uh, dear lady, I gather, is um, uh, just is not that conversant with may in my position, or the position of the Society of St. Pius V, and uh, is new to that, and is, does not, uh, uh, let's see, understand what, what we're talking about when we're talking about it. I think most everybody else who's conversant with our position would know that, though. Okay. All right. Thank you for that, Father. Uh, next question we've had for a little while now. Um, this viewer writes in and asks, if you are familiar, Father, with Messianic Jews, uh, he said he has a family member who belongs to one of these odd sects. She sent me a video of two Jews who were claiming to believe Jesus is the Messiah, telling their audience why we should celebrate all the Jewish festivals like Passover and Hanukkah. So I would just like Father's advice on how I should respond to this family member. It is a very delicate situation. Well, the, the Novus Ordo, the New Order, has tried to bring in the Jewish celebrations into the Novus Ordo, right? They wanted to convince Catholics they should celebrate Passovers and things like that. And uh, these were figures, okay? To celebrate them in the Old Testament would be an act of faith about the coming Christ, coming Messiah. To celebrate them now would be denials that the Christ has come and superseded these things and put them away. Uh, the reality now has overcome the shadow, and that's what these things were. They were shadows of things to come. So, um, uh, St. Paul had a very difficult time with a group called the Judaizers. If you read his epistles, you find that he refers to them very often. And there was a group among the Jewish converts who were insisting that all of those who would accept Jesus Christ uh, as Lord and Savior and as their Messiah had to continue following the law of Moses in its integrity. In other words, they had to live like Pharisees, essentially. And uh, St. Uh, Paul was resisting them mightily, continually. In fact, we just read in the readings, in the bravery, about the apostles' meeting in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, we read that in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. I'd recommend everybody read it. Because St. Peter had, had just accepted the first pagans into the Catholic Church without making them become Jews first. <clears throat> they didn't have to go through 
Moses to become Christians. This was extremely controversial. There were a lot of uh, Jewish converts who were outraged by this. And it was such a serious matter that the uh, apostles called a a council. This was actually the first general council. And that the apostles, the remaining, the surviving apostles, all met in Jerusalem to address this very question. What of the law of Moses do the converts from paganism have to observe? Do they have to become uh, Jews? Do they have to observe the Mosaic law? And um, the apostles deliberated on this and ruled no. The only thing that the, the pagan converts to Christianity, the baptized Christians now who had come from paganism and directly from paganism, not via Judaism, uh, had to observe was they, they could not eat flesh sacrificed to idols. Okay? And they had to abstain from fornication and other impurities, which were very rife among the heathens. These are the two things that the apostles enjoined upon the pagan converts. <clears throat> but, uh, I mean, again, these were not specifically matters of the, of the law of Moses. So essentially what the apostles ruled was, no, you pagans, you among the Greeks and so on, you do not have to become Jews first before you can become Christians. You can be baptized Christians immediately. Uh, that was a very, very serious question. But they were called Judaizers. I'd recommend anybody who has a question about that read Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. And they'll see how the apostles were confronted with this problem and how they dealt with it. When you look through the apostles' epistles of St. Paul, you find that St. Paul very, very strongly talks about the law and says we are not saved by the law. He says that in Romans, right? I mean, Luther made hay out of that, right? He says we are... Luther actually adulterated the words of Scripture by adding a word to it that expressed his thinking, not what Scripture said. We are, for we are saved by faith alone. And Scripture doesn't say alone. We are saved by faith. We all agree, faith is necessary to be saved. Although there are those who say you can be Pope and you don't even have to have faith these days. But we all agree as Catholics that, of course, faith is necessary for salvation. I mean, it's divine revelation. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. My just man lives by faith. St. Paul says these things. So when St. Paul says we are saved by faith, he does not say we are saved by faith alone. And we are not saved by the law. That's a fact. We know that. But when he's saying that, St. Paul is not just referring to any law. He is referring to, we are, we, are, we are not saved specifically by the law of Moses. He's, he's addressing the Judaizers' falsehood, that you have to follow the law of Moses to be saved, and even to become a Christian. You have to embrace it and kind of become like a super Christian Pharisee. Um, of all people, to be the one to stand against that resolutely is a former Pharisee. St. Paul, right, <clears throat> who approved of the death of Stephen uh, be- when he was being put to death by the very, the very people who uh, were preaching this kind of doctrine, uh, who faulted Stephen for not, uh, you know, for believing in Christ, as it were, and uh, not in the law of Moses. So in any case, um, so those who, you know, like Luther, interpret that to mean you're not bound by any law, and all you have to do is believe to be saved, that's a total adulteration of the meaning of the text of Romans. Uh, if you read all of the epistles of St. Paul, put them all together, and you see all the times he actually talks about the Judaizers and how they are, <clears throat> they are misguiding the people, and they're undermining the faith of the people in Christ by trying to get them back to practicing the old law, the law of Moses. It would all become very clear. I mean, look what St. Paul says to the Galatians. He's addressing the question to the Galatians, too. I mean, these people were everywhere. In all of the the missions that he established, the Catholic established, he talks about those in Galatia who, again, are trying to turn the people aside. And at at which point, St. Paul says that even if I or an angel from heaven were to preach a gospel other than that which I preached to you, let him be anathema. 
And here he was referring precisely to that false message of the Judaizers. <clears throat> so this was probably the single greatest battle that St. Paul had to fight. <clears throat> and why uh, the Jews themselves just um, were so arrayed against him, including some of those who had accepted Christ as the Messiah. They still, they still did not get it, though, that, that Christ is the Son of God, whereas Moses is only a, a lawgiver, right? And as Christ said in the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the giver of an imperfect law, which Christ himself had come to perfect and uh, to make perfect. So anyway, um, this is what you have when you have the Messianic Christians, I'm afraid, among the Hebrews. They are, at least to some extent, uh, trying to uh, insinuate uh, mosaic Judaism back in, into Christianity. And uh, in that way, uh, really undermining real the real faith of Christ. Uh, the Catholic Church got it right because the Catholic Church actually was established by Christ and her authority, and it was Christ who gave the authority to the Church, to Peter and the other apostles. And um, that has been the battleground ever since. That is, that is what sa Satan has attacked ever since. If you have any doubt about it, read the opening chapters of, again, the Acts of the Apostles and see See the decision-making power of Peter, and you see what Christ himself determined had to be done to lead the church at that time and throughout time. Catherine. So in any case, uh, I, I hope that answers the question. I'm not entirely clear on what the question, exactly what the question was about, okay. but I hope that somewhere in there there's an answer to it. Okay. Well, Father, uh, something else we wanted to get into tonight was... Uh, so this this news that came out uh, recently, where the uh, the Supreme Court uh, decision regarding this uh, upcoming case that uh, challenges Roe v. Wade uh, apparently was overturned, um, and this draft decision that has been leaked, I believe, on the Politico website, and uh, there's been a lot of talk about that. Um, what the uh, I guess the Supreme Court actually came out today and said that yes, this was authentic, but. The actual final decision hasn't um, hasn't been, been officially pronounced yet, but uh, there's been a lot of speculation about who leaked this and why it was leaked. There's uh, there's some saying that this was this was leaked by the leftist um, in the hopes that there would be all of this uh, pressure put on the the Supreme Court justices to vote the other way. Um, so there's all kinds of talk about this, Father. Um, what what was your response to to this news? Well, I saw it come through last night. On the Politico website, you know, I, someone brought it to my attention uh, to the effect that this is a, a Supreme Court draft of a preliminary decision of the justices uh, made the made the argument that's sort of the majority argument that uh, Roe versus Wade was faulty and could not be accepted as settled law and was overturned, right? And uh, the article by Politico, which is a very leftist, uh, I, I consider, and I think everyone else does, considers a very left-wing publication, right? Um, quoted Justice Alito as the author of this preliminary, well, the, this, this draft, as it were, in the statement of the majority of the court. Um, he, he makes some very, very strong statements against, against Roe versus Wade. In fact, I could read some of them. I, I'm sure you've seen them. Um, now, the actual vote by the Supreme Court uh, will not be definitively taken until December, I understand. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a ways off. Uh, now, I don't know if that, that still holds. I thought there was talk about that. I don't know if that still holds, you know. It could be that we're just uh, actually a couple months away. I don't know, maybe a few months away from a, a definitive decision. Trying to uh, trying to recall what that said, but anyway, uh, could be wrong on that. But nonetheless, uh, the definitive vote hasn't been taken, and so the question came as to well, who leaked this? 
At first, it was thought that there's just a, a handful of people who really had access to such a draft. <clears throat> Others then came out and said, no, there'd be, you know, 60, 60 some people who had access to it. And now there are others who are coming out and saying, no, no, there, there could be as many as 80 people who would have access to that draft. So it keeps growing, just a number. <clears throat> it's obviously some, uh, some uh, functionary, right? And uh, some clerk um, in the courts working for one of the justices, right? Which raises the question, did one of the justices authorize this and actually collude to have this released? And if so, why? And the immediate reaction was that it was one of the leftists who wanted this released. They wanted this released in order to rally the troops against it, to rally the leftist troops, to take to the streets. And in fact, almost immediately, there were protesters already outside the Supreme Court. And so they erected barriers against them almost immediately when this came out. So, um, I mean, according to what I've read, I think the, the, the pretty steady wisdom is, yes, this was leaked by the leftists, and their, their purpose is, uh, they believe, at least the conservatives believe, to, uh, to raise such a hue and cry of the left against this that they will intimidate one or more Supreme Court justice, justice into changing their vote, that they will back down for fear, for terror. No doubt they, they think that they've done that in the, in the past with previous votes, that they've actually uh, swayed the court because the court was uh, a justice who were afraid to take a stand on what was right because they were uh, terrified of the consequences you know, of what the leftist revolutionaries would do. Um, I think the leftists have pretty much voiced that. They've also said we've got to get control of the court by um, raising the number of judges on the Supreme Court, justices. Um, and uh, that actually has been thwarted. Uh, largely, I understand, through the power of the, uh, of the uh, filibuster. Immediately when this became known, the, the Democrats began crying for an end to the filibuster, an end to the filibuster. Let's take away the filibuster powers, because that's what is standing in the way of our, uh, let's shall we say, remaking the Supreme Court in our own image and likeness. So it does seem uh, very, well, it seems true that the leak of this has succeeded in accomplishing all the, the leftist desires the leftist um, purposes of stirring up a hornet's nest uh, in the hopes of pressuring the justices. Uh, the leftist desire of moving, of, of giving the, Demo the Democrats some uh, renewed uh, power to demand the end of the filibuster and that this court cannot be allowed to stand the way it is. Um, but also, uh, Schumer has begun raising millions of dollars from leftists now because of this. It's a direct result, right? This is a prime fundraising effort now. This is a great, great thing for the Democratic Party to be able to rally the troops' bank accounts and say, look, your, your rights to, to murder your babies are being questioned now. Your rights are being threatened now because the court, the Supreme Court, is now on the verge of saying this is not in the Constitution, this right to murder babies, but it must therefore return to the states because the federal government does not have the power uh, or the right to, to speak on this issue or to offer any mandates on this issue. So it's going to go back to the states. And... Um, they find this already intolerable. Tom, they've already been. They've already been uh, moving in the states to have state legislatures try to, uh, you know, lay down um, the law, so to speak, safeguarding abortion rights in the states. They've already been shoring that up. But the fear that there might be states in the union that will, will forbid abortion or will allow the conservatives 
actually to prevail in some states to prevent babies from being murdered by Democrats. Um, that is just intolerable to them. Uh, they become uh, lunatics with rage over that, right? Uh, but of course, if you're willing to murder babies, I guess you kind of qualify. You know, you don't have to, far long to go far to become that. In any case, um, but this is why there's this enormous hue and cry now. <clears throat> so um, the question really arises, who would do that? I mean, uh, they, they kind of narrow it down, they think, as to who could have done that. I think it's a very serious question to find out if one of the justices uh, colluded to release this. <clears throat> but in the, in the court's entire history, there are, the, there are those who say that something like this has not happened before. Now, of course, of course, of course, uh, they enlist experts. And so now, now we're getting well, experts say this and experts say that. Experts say that this is a serious offense and it could be prosecuted, but other experts are saying, no, no, this is not illegal, and there's no crime committed here. And uh, it's, it gets back to the old thing, the ex, you know, this is death by experts here, the death of truth by experts. All you need to do is raise any point, and you'll find, you know, half a dozen experts to give you two different, different opinions, two dozen different opinions. Uh, the experts have very, very little of any credibility left after COVID-19 <clears throat> and all the yakking they've done about that. Um, but in any case, they, they still demand, uh, you know, they go to their experts and they get opinions, and I guess those experts will impress people who agree with what the experts have to say, which tells you the experts really have very little credibility, honestly. Um, and remember, I mean, experts want to be held as experts because, let's face it, they're on the cutting edge. They see things that others don't see, right? And so the way you become an expert is by saying something outrageous that is like a departure from what the, all the ex other experts are saying. Then the press goes right to you, you know, and suddenly you're the, you're the one they want to talk to because all of these other experts are saying this, but you're saying something new and different. And that's how you make a name for yourself in academia and in law, you know, <laughs> so, uh, and in medicine these days, apparently. <clears throat> um, so anyway, um, uh, in any case, it's, it's a real, it's a real, um, it's a real catfight, right? And, and the media is all about stirring it up, just rubbing it up, rubbing it up in terms of revolution. Um, where, where is this going to go? I don't know. I, I, I personally think that uh, it is the issue. When America started uh, to murder its babies with the veneer of legality, uh, I think it was the beginning of the, of the end. I mean, perhaps it was the beginning of the end before that, when with the birth control pill, they changed the very nature between husband and wife and marriage as a life-giving institution. One could argue that that was the beginning of the end. <clears throat> Regardless, um, it all comes down to what Our Lady said at Fatima. It's a matter of sin. It all comes down to a matter of sinfulness. Now, this is where the big battle is, though. The big battle is the value of human life, what human life is all about. That's the, getting to that fundamental issue. Uh, whether there is uh, a soul, whether we're nothing but a bunch of molecules, whether we're evolved from apes and that's all there is to it. Uh, or whether apes evolved from us, I guess. So those who make that issue, some experts would argue that now. But in any case, um, it has come to that now, just a total loss of faith. But those who have faith in God, in the true God, and our Lord Jesus Christ as the true Son of God, have to, have to rise up right now and take a very strong stand and not be timid about it. They have to be very strong about it. Meekness means... Uh, being uh, easygoing about your own opinions, but it means having the heart of a lion when it comes to being faithful to Christ. That's what true meekness is. Our Lord was being very meek when he overturned the money, chamber, money changers' tables in the temple and knotted the cords of his, of his cincture and used it as a whip to drive them out. 
that was righteous anger, and our Lord showed true meekness. And it came to his own personal interests and attacks against him and so on. He was very meek about that, very mild about that. He answered the questions. He answered them very forthrightly. <clears throat> but when it came to the honor of God the Father in heaven, he was very formidable. Oh, and so it was that our Lord said, you, it is, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so we might well say that today, too. We might well say that to these people today. You have made it a den of thieves. <clears throat> uh, basically the whole world, right? That's what you've made. But anyway, uh, we'll see what happens. Um, Republicans are calling for, or at least the conservatives among the Republicans, at least the real conservatives, not the rhinos, are calling for an investigation to find out who leaked this and what are the legal ramifications of leaking it and whether you know this was in order to intimidate the court and deny the court its uh, its uh, freedom to to decide according to its lights, you know, or to uh, coerce the court. Of course. But they consider that an insurrection, right? To coerce the judicial, judiciary, <laughs> supreme judiciary of the United States. Uh, it's only an insurrection if it's against them and their, and their uh, ideology, right? Then it's an insurrection, right? Um, but in any case, I, I would think that that would certainly qualify mm -hmm. as an effort to support, subvert, subvert the government of the United States of America. <clears throat> But, but you had a few more questions there, Tom. Perhaps we could just quickly get through them because I know there are people who have been waiting and we've looked at these a few times. Can we just quickly uh, address those two? Sure, Father. There's the one about uh, meekness which you hinted at. Um, oh. This viewer asked how he could practice meekness towards another when the other person has most definitely grievous, grievously wronged me. He says, I find the practice of meekness in the face of such injustice to be the hardest thing in life. It is hard, right? It is very, very hard. Uh, it's hard to be silent when somebody cuts us off in traffic, when somebody gets in front of us in line. But this gentleman, if it is a gentleman, I guess, not a lady, I don't know. Either way, for either men or women, it's still hard when people do things like that. But what you're talking about here sounds as though you've been, you've suffered more than merely being cut off in traffic or cut off in line. Talking about a grievous, grievous harm. And yet, <clears throat> what our Lord is asking you to do is to forgive so that you may be forgiven. And, uh, of course, insofar as what people have done to you is sinful and therefore offensive to God, you can be unhappy about that, certainly, as our Lord himself was about the Father being, you know, offended. But you look at the example of our Lord and he makes it very clear, if you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive. And if you, want, if you are grateful for our Lord having forgiven you, well, to show that gratitude by being willing to forgive others, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so I'd say this person who is writing this has an excellent opportunity. The person can be moved to seek revenge, right? But everyone loses with that, and he himself would lose the most. Right? Uh, this person can stew about it and fret about it, but again, he's that's like drinking the poison in the hopes that somebody else will die. It doesn't help, right? But this person has a wonderful opportunity insofar as if this person has actually suffered some serious wrong, it's not, it's not uh, against the law of Christ for him to seek redress and to try to set the record straight and try to make things right. That's not, that's not wrong. But at the same time, even as he does that, he cannot be moved by malice. He cannot be moved by malice against that other person. To the extent that he's moved by malice against the other person, to that extent, he, he's committing sin. So I would just advise him, okay, if you have nothing to gain by pursuing this with the other person, even if you, if you have no way to make things right with them, Please don't uh, harbor an animosity toward them. Pray for them, as our Lord would have you do, as he prayed for you from the cross. And you have an, actually an opportunity here to 
spiritually gain an enormous victory. And that's an enormous victory over yourself for our Lord himself. That if you can, uh, out of love for our Lord, find it in, in you, the grace of God, to sincerely forgive this person for your heart, it doesn't mean you, ex you just accept it as that perfectly fine. I'm not saying that, okay? But that you do not have malice toward this person and you want this person to save his soul. So you have a certain charitable, which is a divine love for that person. That that will gain for you so many graces from God and such forgiveness. If that's the measure of your forgiveness, that'll be the measure of God's forgiveness. Manifold times, right? So sometimes we forget that when we are put in a position of forgiving others who have injured us and not carrying malice toward them or even hatred, <clears throat> if we can, by the grace of God, succeed in doing that, in forgiving them and not having that malice toward them, that this is like opening the floodgates of God's forgiveness to ourselves. And what is that worth? Infinitely worth more than anything anybody else on earth has cost us to open up the floodgates of God's mercy by simply being merciful. You know? So I, I say it's a, it's a great opportunity. I say this without knowing what great harm the other person has experienced, um, but nonetheless, I just say that they have an opportunity to gain a great spiritual value, a victory here, and maybe this is the supreme test of their life right now as to what our Lord wants of them. The question is, if this is, what our, if this, is this what our Lord wants of them? And are they willing to do it for him? That's the only question right now. Are they willing to give it to him? So what else have you got there? <laughs> okay. Uh, one viewer wrote in and said that, I have wept and experienced intense, uncontainable emotions of sorrow and joy when praying the rosary. Sometimes the emotion corresponds to the mystery I'm meditating on. For example, I experience deep sadness and sob when praying the sorrowful mysteries, and when praying the joyful mysteries, I have wept tears of joys, smiling uncontrollably too. Admittedly, I was startled by these experiences. Father, should I be concerned? Is this normal? Have you ever encountered anything like this? Uh, not that I know of, no. Um, usually, uh, you know, people I, I've known, I've known some people I consider very holy, <clears throat> but I haven't known anyone to be so demonstrative in their emotions, right? And, but I have known people who are very demonstrative in their emotions, and I don't mean to you know, point the finger, who are uh, somewhat unsteady in the sense that they go from one extreme to another emotionally. Uh, but I don't know anybody who has manifested these, you know, these extremes while praying the rosary. Um, um, is there anything wrong with it? Not that I know of, as long as it doesn't draw, draw attention to oneself and make one the center of willingly and doesn't, you know, with forethought, the center of attention, as though it, it makes other people think, oh, aren't they holy? They're so devout. If that's, you know, what people are thinking, then that would not be right. It would not be health, healthy. But if they're just meditating on the mystery so deeply that it profoundly affects their emotions, that is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we read about preachers of old, like Saint Thomas, such as St. Thomas Aquinas and so on, who spoke so eloquently and so movingly of our Lord's passion that the entire congregation of the church was re reduced to tears over it, right? There are other preachers, too, who spoke with tremendous power about our Lord's, <coughs> you know, the glory of his resurrection, the misery of his passion, that uh, people re were reduced to tears or, or great transports of joy. Um, so, in itself, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, one just has to be very careful that these external manifestations of emotion uh, are not, uh, not be mistaken for the, the real essence of prayer, which is a matter of raising one's heart and mind to God. And insofar as that affects the emotions, that's fine. But we have to be very wary, though, of those manifestations of emotion being, um, well, uh, for the benefit of others around us, you know, to impress them. We have to be very careful about that.
Okay. Well, Father, that was all I had for you tonight. Well, that's amazing, Tom. <laughs> uh, anyway, but I'm glad we got through those. I guess they've been waiting some time. So. Okay. Father, thanks for your time tonight, and thanks for everything that you do. God oh, absolutely, Tom. God bless you, too. For all you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless May you. I, and Father Jenkins. They interject. Okay. Yes. One thing, you usually ask if I have a closing statement. Yes. I do. Okay. Pray for the Supreme Court justices. Pray for them. They're going to be under fire right now. So we really have to assiduously pray for them that God will give them the fortitude to stand up for what is right. Okay. Amen. All in line with what you've just said. Yep. Ask Our Lady. Right? Go to Our Lady. Ask her immaculate heart to triumph in this. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Tim. God bless you all.